Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, and a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Edomea, and beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. Jesus went up to the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the twelve to Simon, he gave the name Peter, to James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. For those of you I have not met, I'm Mark Upton. I'm the pastor at Hope Community Church and the assistant moderator of the Central Carolina Presbytery, of which Christ Central is a part. And so it's my great privilege uh, to be with you today and to open God's word. Uh, Before we do, uh, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day, uh, a day that you have set apart, uh, that we can come and sit at your feet and listen to you. And Lord, I pray that we would do that. I I pray, Lord, that we would be before you this morning saying, um, we're listening, Lord. Um, Your servant is listening. And as we do, uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you tell us that uh, if we knew who was asking us for things, that we would ask you and you would give us eternal life, the living water of the very word of God. And so we pray that that's what would happen this morning. Lord, not only here at Christ Central, but at Hope and uh, at all the churches of the Central Carolina Presbytery, uh, the churches our brothers and sisters are leading uh, in other parts. Uh, We pray you'd be with the Browns and the McKnights and the Martins and Uh, All those, Lord, you've used here at Christ Central through the years to glorify your name. We thank you for the privilege of sitting under their ministry and the power of their prayers and the presence of your word speaking through them. And uh, we pray that you do that again today. Uh, Lord, that you would be pleased to speak the truth in love to us and to give us ears to hear it and hearts to believe it. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, Josh told me I could preach on whatever I wanted to because you guys have been going through the Minor Prophets and he wrapped up Jonah. And uh, at Hope, we're uh, studying the book of Mark right now. So uh, it was just easy for me uh, to kind of continue with what we've been doing. Um, In the passage uh, that we're going to look at today, um, uh, some interesting things are going on involving two crowds. And as I was studying this passage, it reminded me of a book written by Dr. Larry Crabb. It was called The Pressure is Off, and it came out in 2002, uh, the very year that I planted hope. Um, Now, when I first read this book, uh, Crabb begins it with this statement. This is how he opens the book. He says, right now, at this very moment, you're walking one of two paths through life. Either you've decided that what you most want out of life is within your reach, 
and you're doing whatever you believe it takes to get it, or you've realized that what you most want is beyond your reach, and you're trusting God for the satisfaction you seek. You want Him, nothing less, not even His blessings. If you're walking the first path, your life is filled with pressure. Inside, where no one sees, your soul is weary. You see no way to step off the treadmill. Or, life is going well, and you're satisfied, but you sense something is wrong, something's missing, and you're afraid the other shoe is about to drop, so the pressure is still there. If you're walking the second path, you have hope. Your soul may be weary, your interior world may be filled with struggles, but you have hope. At times, you rest, but something is alive in you. The desire of your heart is not smothered. You taste freedom, and that taste brings joy. Now, when I first read this, I was on the first path. I was planning a church because I had always wanted friends and family that loved me the way I wanted to be loved. And I thought that the gospel would provide me with the power to produce those types of people. And so I had this idea as I started Hope in the YWCA with 44 people and 22 kids. Oh God, the life I've always wanted is right here within my grasp. And so if you were around me in those days, you could feel it. You could feel that the pressure was on, particularly if you were my wife, (laughs) all right? Davis, our son, who's here today, had just been born, and Holly was struggling, right, with postpartum issues, and I was wanting her to be the wind beneath my wings in this church plant. And so I was putting pressure on her to, like, come on. Can't you get it together? Can't we get this right? And when it didn't work, um, we met with Odette Valder, who was here in this church. And she had a counseling ministry, psychiatric ministry. We were meeting with her. And uh, Holly and I were sitting down with her. And um, I was like, Odette, we got to fix this, right? We got to get this going. Let's let's get this fixed up. And Odette kind of sat back, and she looked at me. And she's like, Mark, what... You, you just started a church, right? I was like, yeah. She said, didn't it have a tagline? What was that tagline? And I was like, real people look into the real Jesus for real change. And she said, huh, this seems real <laughs> to me. I kind of am getting the feeling right now that maybe you're not looking to Jesus with this. I'm kind of feeling a pressure from you. That you're looking to me, that you're kind of demanding that Holly and I get this figured out. And she was right. That's what was happening in my heart. Now, over time, God gently but patiently patiently delivered me from that foolishness. He delivered me from idealizing Christian community and my church and the power of the gospel to give me my best life now. He kind of let he kind of awakened me to the fact that that's not true. And so slowly, I have been able, by God's grace, to join the second group. My soul is often weary. Sometimes my life is filled with struggles, but I have hope. And I can taste freedom, and that taste brings me joy. So here's why I bring this up. 
Today in our passage, we're going to see both groups interacting with Jesus. The first group we meet is pursuing the better life of God's blessings. The second is receiving the better hope of a relationship with God. We'll begin with the first group. Word of Jesus' supernatural power to heal people has gotten out, and it has spread all over Israel. And so now, enormous crowds of people are coming from all over the country and packing Capernaum, where Jesus' home base was, in the hopes that he is going to be able to give them what they want, which is deliverance from physical diseases and spiritual slavery. We read about it in verse 7, where we read this. Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee. And a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Now the crowds have gotten so big that Jesus can no longer teach in his home, or in Peter's home, or in the synagogue, but has had to relocate to the beach. And not only that, he can't teach on the beach itself. People are pressing in on him so hard and so fast and so desperately that he has had to tell his disciples to get a small boat ready. We read about that in verse 9. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat for, ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Now, why is that? Why does Jesus have to have this boat ready as a contingency plan? Why is the crowd a threat to Jesus' personal safety and ministry goals? Well, because the crowd is more interested in Jesus' power than they are in his person. As Crabb explained, they had decided that what they most wanted out of life was within their reach, and they were doing whatever it took to get it, even if that meant that Jesus could no longer do what he wanted to do. Because this crowd is more interested in the old way. Crabb says the same thing happens to us anytime we start doing something religiously. This is how he describes this approach. This first path is the old way. It involves a quid pro quo arrangement with God. And if not with God, then with the order in the universe, with the rules that make life work. If you do what you should do, then you get what you want, either from a moral God who rewards good behavior or from an orderly world that you effectively use. It leaves you in control of how things turn out in your life. The old way promises a better life filled with good things that make you happy. But it never delivers, though it may seem to for a long time. The old way doesn't work for one reason. You never keep your end of the bargain. Not completely. No one does. Which is why Jesus had to issue this warning. Verse 11. When the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he would strongly warn them not to make him known. 
This is one of the most sobering truths in this passage. It turns out that demons can be very religious. They promise and promote, though, the old way of a quid pro quo relationship with religion, not with God. And this is why the guys who flew the planes into the World Trade Center had been religiously deceived into thinking they were doing God's will. Their self-sacrifice was going to earn them paradise, is what they had been taught. Jesus' younger brother James explains demonic religion this way in James 2, 18-19. He says, Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good, even demons believe that, and shudder. Here's the sobering thing for people, especially people like me, who've been to seminary and you know, minister in the PCA. It's this, demons have really good theology. Right? They used to be angels. The problem isn't what they don't know about God. What they know about God is absolutely true. The problem is they don't trust what they know. Right? They don't trust what they know. Consequently, when Jesus first appeared on the planet, Satan came to him with some suggestions about how he run his ministry. The first suggestion was that he pursue consumer Christianity. Turn these stones into bread, right? You're hungry. You got a legitimate desire for bread. It's been 40 days. You've got the power. Do it. Prosper yourself. Turn these stones into bread. But Jesus saw through that because he knew Deuteronomy 8.3 says, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus told, chose relationship with his father over consumer Christianity. He chose the better hope of a relationship with his father over the better life of blessings. So then Satan pivots and he says, hey, you know, Psalm 91, God made you this promise for he'll give his angels orders concerning you Right? Remember, Satan had heard this order. <laughs> He'd been an angel. To protect you in all your ways. They'll support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Here's all you need to do. Go to Jerusalem. Get up on top of the temple. Throw yourself off. The angels will show up. Public miracle. Center of the capital of the city of God and the people of God and the nation of God. Boom! Your messianic ministry is off to a huge start. Be a celebrity. Christian, why don't you do that? Man, early in my ministry, I really wanted to speak the Gospel Coalition. I wanted to be on the board, Surge. I wanted to, you know, I got to lead worship one time at, a, at the General Assembly, you know, here, when we had it here in Charlotte. And I was like, man, this is it. Boy, I'm, I'm about to come a big deal. I'm going to write a book. Woo! It's going to be good. By God's grace, nah. <laughs> Man, nobody ever paid attention to me, right? Thank God they didn't. Man, that would have blown my head up. I would have been a complete train wreck mess. And Jesus knew the same thing. He knew 
that pursuing celebrity Christianity is often putting God to the test. He said, no, 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 mm-mm. You, don't, you don't test the Lord your God. And that explains then how Jesus responds to these demons, right? Once again, they're suggesting that he speed up his ministry by letting them announce that they know who he is, that he's the real deal. They want, they want to be his, you know, the people who kind of go before him. And so look again at verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you're the son of God, we would, and he would strongly warn them not to make him known. You see, here we, ex- we see Jesus explaining to people who've just been delivered from spiritual slavery that their former masters are trying to trick them on their way out. And they're trying to give them this special secret knowledge, this special revelation that they can feed to the crowd and be incredibly spiritually popular and significant, right? And this often happens. You'll often see people who go from like, hey, man, I was a drug addict, and then boom, Jesus delivered me from drugs. Now, man, I've got a ministry calling. I'm just going to get up on stage and preach about Jesus all the time, all right? Which is really, in a strange way, can be another form of addiction, right? You can be moving from being addicted to the feelings a chemical produces to, in you to moving into addiction to the feelings being the center of a worshiping community produces in you. It can be another form of getting high. And so I see this. I see people that we have to kind of warn off, young men. It's why you don't lay hands on young men too soon. You'd be like, all right, well, glad Jesus delivered you. It's great. And I'm sure you'll have a wonderful ministry. But we'd like you to begin by cleaning some toilets. right? We'd like you to begin by washing some feet. We'd like you to begin by taking the lower place. Why don't you take the lowest place at the table, and God will exalt you in due time. Why don't we do that? And when I tell young men at RTS who come here and go, hey, man, I'm here at RTS. I want an internship at Hope. Great. What do you want to do? I want to preach. I was like, yeah, not going to happen, right? (laughs) Not going to happen. I tell you what you're going to do, right? You're going to take external mercy calls, and you can go love your neighbor as yourself. And then they're like, I don't know know if I'm called to that, right? So Jesus warned these guys, and he said, don't fall for that trick, right? You need to be quiet. You need to trust me, and you need to let me lead my ministry, not you. Because at this point, these demons on their way out were tempting these people who'd just been healed to give the crowd what they wanted. And what did the crowd want? The crowd wanted access to supernatural power. They wanted power. Well, that's the third thing Jesus had been tempted by Satan with, right? Satan had said, hey, listen, I got a great plan for your ministry. A crown of the kingdom of God without a cross. We can skip that whole cross thing. You worship me and I will give you lordship over every power in the world. What I'll give you is Christian nationalism. That's what I'll give you, right? We're going to be able to govern the world according to the ethics of the kingdom of God coercively. If you will just worship me. All right, that's all we got to do. And then guess what you get? You get the crown of the kingdom with no cross. That sounds great, doesn't it? Isn't that a great idea? And uh, Jesus knew. He was like, no, no, no. Mm -mm. 
I worship the Lord and him alone who is slow to anger and abounding in love, who is gentle and lowly and who came to seek and to save the lost and to sacrifice himself for them. So instead of turning stones into bread, he came to be the bread of life. Instead of forcing angels to serve him by catching him as he left off the top of the temple, he told them no as they stood and watched him die on a cross. He let them minister to him in the garden of Gethsemane as he sweat blood. And instead of choosing to be a king without a cross, he bore a crown of thorns on a cross so that he could worship his father by serving us. And why did he do all of that? Well, Napoleon explains why. Of all people, I'm fascinated that Napoleon wrote this. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But upon what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love, and at this very hour, millions of men would die for him. And because that's true, what did Jesus do instead in our passage? Verse 13, Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. Jesus chose intimacy with God and intimacy with humans over prosperity, celebrity, and power. Which reveals just how far God is willing to go to get what he wants. And what is it he wants exactly? Well, did you see it in verse 13? He wants you. He wants intimacy with you. Look again. Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted. And they came to him. Crabb describes this as the second path. This is what he says. The second path is the new way. In this arrangement, God first plants a desire in your heart, a longing that actually values his presence over his blessings. And then he invites you to live out that desire, to abandon yourself to what you most want. It takes you out of control, but it sets you free. The new way promises a better hope than the good things of life. It promises nearness to God, and it delivers, though not right away, and often through suffering. Notice how Jesus does this in our passage today. Jesus went up on the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. Here we see Jesus doing four things. First, he spends time alone with his Father in prayer. Then, he calls his people to enter into a personal relationship with him. He then forms that people into a community. And finally, he sends them out with power 
and a message. First, he spends time alone with his father. We see Jesus doing this over and over again. When people will be crowded around him and wanting him to bless them and to heal them and to tell them what's true, they'll look up one day and he's just gone. He just left. Because Jesus, in a very strange way, had a lot more free time than your average pastor. Right? He was willing to go to parties. He was willing to go to prayer. He would go and rest. Um... He was, he was free. Henry Nouwen, in uh, the final article he wrote before he died, said most of us do the very opposite of this. That the way we typically work is there's something in life that we want to change. We want the power to change it. Now, it can be anything. It might be the government. It might be southern culture. It might be people on the other side of the aisle politically. It might be a family member you're going to see this week or your boss or your body. But there's something in life that you want to change. And so you try to change it. And you discover pretty early on that you don't have enough power to change it. That you need some help. You need some people who can come alongside you and together we can change it. So you start pulling a community of people around you, start rallying people to your cause to try to get them on your side, whether that's blogging online or calling your sister and planning ahead to next week or, you know, talking to your friends at work. But you start getting these people, you want them on your side. And then um, as a group, you begin to try this and it's just not working. It's just not coming together. And so then finally you pray and say, ah, Lord, help us, right? Help us. I want you, Lord, to do my will in heaven. I want my will on earth to be done in heaven, right? That's essentially what, I want my kingdom to come. I want my will to be done in heaven as it is on earth. Can we do that, please? Jesus does just the opposite of this. He begins from the place of complete intimacy with his father. He enjoys spending time with his dad. He describes it this way in John 5, 19-21. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. And for whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he's doing, and he will show him greater works than these, so that you will be amazed." This is what made it possible for Jesus to walk away from this crowd. He had complete freedom from the opinions of other people. He was not a man pleaser. He didn't care what anybody thought. He played to an audience of one. The only thing he was concerned about is, Father, what are you up to today? How can I be with you? How can I be part of it? I'm available. I'm interested. Whatever you want us to do together today, I'm in. And that's how in three short years he's able to change the world. So on this day, when he spent time with his father, what did his father tell him he wanted to do? He said, well, I want you to invite some people to join us. I want you to invite people into this intimate relationship we have. Verse 14, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. Appointed them to what? To be with him, right? That was their appointment. The thing that makes you an apostle is that you're with Jesus. That's it. It's not hard, right? 
These other things are fruits of apostleship. The actual definition of an apostleship is this. Oh, Jesus wants to be with me, and I want to be with him. So when he invites me to be with him, I say yes. That's it. I go where he asks me to go. You see, the main thing that God wants from you is a personal relationship. It's why you exist. Paul put it this way when he was trying to explain this to the people in Athens. In Acts 17, 26 through 28. From one man he's made every nationality to live over the whole earth as, and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps might, they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. This then is what being called by God initially feels like. It feels like a desire to seek him. And when we do respond to that desire, what do we discover? Well, we discover that he was seeking us first. Romans 8, 28 through 30. We know all things work together for the good of those who love God who were called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You see, here's the reason that God calls us to himself, because he wants us to be adopted into his family. So that we can be with him where he lives forever. Jesus put it this way in John 14, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that you, so that where I am, you may also be. You see that again? Again, the whole point. The reason I've come is so that we can be together. The reason I've come is so that you can be where I am. And this is why he names us. Verse 16 says, He appointed the twelve, and to Simon he gave the name Peter. To James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. I love how intimate this is. Right? This is a thing only best friends do. Right? They give each other nicknames. They give each other special names. It, it's, it kind of makes you family. I love how Bono describes this in his recent memoir, Surrender, when he's talking about the guys who all grew up with him on his street in Dublin, Ireland. He uh, is talking about his best friend, Derek Rowan, and he says this, I've been best friends with Derek Rowan, or Googie, since I was three years old and he was four. Googie not only gave me the name Bono, he gave everyone in his family new and surreal names. The names we gave each other were not merely to make each other laugh, but also to illuminate something of who we were. Beyond those names given us by our families at birth, before our personalities were known, the names were supposed to describe the shape of your spirit as well as your physical characteristics. So when Googie gave Bono, who's 
uh, given name was Paul, the name Bono, he was actually making fun of him because there was a hearing aid store on the street called Bonovox, which means loud voice in Latin. And so he named Bono Bonovox at first, and then they shortened it down to Bono. And it ended up being the perfect name for a guy whose calling in life was to be the lead singer of the most fruitful Christian band of my generation, who literally was used of God to change the world in amazing ways. And Jesus is doing that here. You see, the three most intimate relationships of this 12 are going to be Peter, James, and John. And so to the impulsive Peter, he gives the tongue-in-cheek nickname, right, The Rock, right? His name was Simon, and he becomes Peter, The Rock. To James and John, who were his cousins, the sons of Zebedee, he gives the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, which I think is probably a tongue-in-cheek reaction to the fact that their whole family was so easily angered, right? That they they were so hot-headed. And so he's poking fun at them, but in a loving and affectionate way that says, not only do I know who you really are, I intend to shape your soul, right? Because one of the sons of thunder ends up laying his head on Jesus's chest at the Last Supper. And he's the one who sticks with him all the way to the end at the cross and to whom he gives his mom. The other one is the first one who's killed for the faith, right? The very first martyr. And so, one day, the Word of God says that if you respond to Jesus' call, Jesus is going to do the same thing for you. In Revelation 2.17, we read Jesus' words. He says, Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone... A new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus loves you this much. He's this excited to have you live with him forever in his father's home and to be part of his family. And he can't wait to name you as a little brother or a little sister. To give you a new name that only the two of you know. That defines the shape of your soul. I love how now and then describes the community that Jesus forms out of these people he's calling to himself. Because Jesus calls a very strange group of people to himself, right? He calls a tax collector who worked for the Roman government and a zealot who was trying to overthrow the Roman government. Right? He calls two brothers, the sons of thunder, who probably argued with each other all the time. We know that Andrew and Peter argued with each other a lot. You had Nathaniel in there who doubted that Jesus was who he could be. He said he was because he was from Nazareth. He had kind of a, a, you know, a cultural elitist attitude toward those Nazarenes. He would look down on them. We know that you had Thomas the doubter, and then you had Judas Iscariot who was going to betray him. Why would God pick this community of people? And the answer is because God is determined to create supernatural family out of natural enemies. Right? That's what he is doing. 
Nowen puts it this way. He says, community is not easy. Someone once said, community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. <laughs> Can I get an amen, Christ says, I know y'all know that, right? Y'all know that's true, right? In Jesus' community of 12 apostles, the last name was that of someone who was going to betray him. That person is always in your community somewhere. In the eyes of others, you might be that person. Woo! I've been that person. I've been that person recently. Right? A friend of mine a few weeks ago said, man, you betrayed me. Right? We're, having to, we're having to work our way back out of a really hard place. And yet, God's grace is sufficient. It's one of the reasons I'm here today. If you've been around when I preached before, you may recall I grew up in Mississippi. I once had a Hank Williams Jr. rebel flag hanging on my college dorm room wall because I thought that's like what Southern pride looked like. I didn't understand grace or the gospel or cultural agility or white supremacy I'd been taken captive by some um, human traditions that Jesus needed to deliver me from. And so by his grace, he sent Kevin Squire, when I first volunteered with Young Life, to be my first genuine black friend who graciously visited me at my dorm room when he was working in Winston-Salem on the other side of town. And I said, hey, man, that's really offensive. And I was like, what? like, yeah, that's Hank Williams Jr. He said, no, 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 man, that's, that's bad. We, we got to talk, right? And so by God's grace and Kevin's grace, God began to deliver me from cultural captivity to all kinds of foolishness. And God wants to do the same thing for us because all of us come into God's family with attachment disorders. And here's how you get reattached to Christ and to one another through the love of God, right? The law inflames sin. The love of God expels sin. John, of all people, put it this way in 1 John 3, 1 through 4. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Dear friends, we're God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now that kind of relationship, that kind of community is too good to keep up to ourselves. And that's why Jesus sends us out. Verse 14, he appointed 12 whom he named apostles to be with him to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. But he doesn't send us out alone, right? He sends us out with his spirit so that by his grace we're empowered to speak his very words and serve with the strength that he provides. Peter explained it this way. In 1 Peter 4, 7-11, he said, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another. 
since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one of you has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. And if anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So the question for us today is very simple. Do you hear Jesus' voice? Is God using me this morning and giving me his words for you? If you do, then understand that it's an invitation into the most intimate relationship you can ever have with the God who never fails. He may not come when you call him, but he always arrives right on time. And if you respond to this relationship, you'll be changed. From Simon to Peter, from the sons of thunder to one of the sons and daughters of God. For Jesus went up the mountain and he summoned those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 whom he also named apostles to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to summon us. We ask now, Lord, that you would give us the humility and courage and grace necessary to respond to your call that we might be with you where you are and be appointed by you to go out and to preach and to drive out evil in this dark and tasteless world. We ask this in your name. Amen.